Good to see all of you. The title of this morning's sermon is A King Gave a Great Banquet and Invited Many. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 14. Look at verses 15 through 24, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, we'll read verses 15 through 24 says, when one of those who reclined at table with him, with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, this is Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that there is a heavenly banquet that awaits us and that Christ talked about it to give us an idea of the greatness of it. I thank you that it's prefigured through every Lord's Supper that we celebrate, and it's a blessing to me to be able to preach this sermon following uh, the celebration of communion. And so give us an anticipation for this heavenly banquet that awaits us, Lord. But perhaps the real focus of this morning's sermon would be people like this gentleman in verse 15 who thought that he was invited when in fact he uh, would not be attending. And I think of those who made excuses, and I pray there wouldn't be anyone here who would be in that category making excuses associated with the invitation that the the gospel is to them, Lord. And so I just come before you. I bring uh, those who would be unsaved, who would fall into either of these categories, and pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation to them. How unfortunate would it be for anyone to think that they're going to participate in this heavenly banquet only to die and learn uh, just within a few moments that they in fact would be excluded. And so there's great application here in these verses, Lord. I pray for uh, each believer that you've continued the sanctifying work that your word accomplishes and for the unbeliever, Lord, that you'd grant them repentance and faith in Christ so that they can partake in this banquet in the future. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. This past week, I found the most outrageous excuses that people could give for not going to work. They were contained in different medical journals. I did look them up because I wouldn't have wanted to report something to you that was, uh, in fact, not true. And so people avoided work for these reasons. In 1982, the Canadian Medical Association reported bingo brain which is the headache associated with carbon monoxide intoxication occurring after spending long hours in smoke-filled bingo halls. In 1956, the Journal of the American Medical Association reported espresso wrist, 
which is pain caused by espresso machine operators from strong wrist motions required to operate the equipment. Do you have any espresso makers here? Is that true that it requires considerable wrist exertion? Yes? Someone said that? Okay. Have you ever experienced espresso wrist? No? Okay. In nine... In, it's a real thing? Yeah. Okay. Anna experienced it? Okay, so they missed work because of it? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't make fun of any, anyone with espresso wrist. <laughs> In 1965, the British Medical Association Journal reported flip-flop dermatitis, which is a skin disease on the feet from wearing rubber, rubber flip-flops. Now, I have worn flip-flops for many years, and God has graciously prevented me from experiencing this infirmity. The New England Medical Journal reported three different excuses that I thought were worth mentioning. Disco digit, reported in 1979, which is a sore finger caused from snapping fingers while dancing. <laughs> okay. Second, jeans folliculitis, reported in 1981, which is an irritation of the hair follicles from the waist to the knees caused by wearing too tight of jeans. So just one other warning to all of you associated with wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> Ice cream frostbite, reported in 1982, which is not surprisingly frostbite on the lips from prolonged contact with ice cream. <laughs> I don't think that will be discouraging any of us from consuming ice cream, to be honest. Here are a few others quickly, because I don't want this to go on too long, as enjoyable as it is. Joystick digit, knife sharpener's cramp. Label liquor's tongue, money counters cramp, supposed from counting money, electronic space war video game epilepsy. Yes, one other warning against playing video games. You could, I suppose, have an epileptic, epileptic seizure. And then my personal favorite, television legs, which is the loss of normal flexibility in your legs from being slumped in a chair too long watching television. And <laughs> it's actually pretty serious. You can get blood clots in your legs too. So one other warning associated with watching too much television. Okay, now look at verse 18. They all alike began to make excuses. And so the guests in this morning's verses, they made some uh, equally ridiculous uh, excuses, as we'll see, but they missed out on something much more considerable than just work, and that is salvation. And so keep that in mind that the invitation to this wedding banquet is a metaphor for, or it's really entrance into the kingdom of God, which is really to say that this invitation to this wedding banquet is a metaphor for salvation. Look at verse 15 to see what this parable flows from. When one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard him say these things, he said to him, and this would be a religious leader that said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so this religious leader hears Jesus talking about eating bread in the kingdom of God, and how does he feel? How does he feel? He's excited. He's, he has anticipation. He, he flares up. You know, it almost sounds like he might have interrupted Jesus or at least said it as, as soon as Jesus concluded his discussion about how blessed people will be to eat bread in the kingdom of God, but what's the problem for him? Yeah, he's not going to be there. 
that's why Jesus ends up preaching this parable to correct this man's thinking and, and possibly the thinking of others who would believe that they would be in attendance when they will in fact be excluded. And that is the context for this parable. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And the man is God the Father. The great banquet is the marriage supper for his son in the New Testament. We know that Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. And so it's fitting that when Jesus is united with the church or with his bride, it's presented or described as this great uh, marriage feast, one of which we look forward to. Revelation 19 describes the marriage supper of the Lamb that all of us who are believers will um, attend. Now, because this banquet is associated with salvation, as he discusses this parable and the excuses that these people provide, understand that they are excuses that people provide to the gospel itself. To be invited to this banquet is to be invited into the kingdom of God. Now, I want to explain something important. If you don't, actually, if you don't understand this, I would say that you won't be able to appreciate what's happening in this parable. And this won't just apply to your understanding of this parable but other places in the gospel that deal with uh, weddings and betrothals in general. There were two invitations. There were two invitations. There was, for all formal suppers and for many um, large formal events, the first invitation would be much like our save the date. Uh, they would send uh, out invitations weeks or months in advance so that people could mark their calendars. And then the invited guests would RSVP. They would communicate whether they were going to attend. They would relay that to the servant, and then the servant would relay that to the master or the person putting on this formal banquet. And then the host would know how many guests to expect. And once you committed and you'd given your word, it's pretty much like today. If you told someone, I'm going to be at your house for dinner or I'm going to attend this, then the person that's putting on this banquet or dinner prepares you know, based on the number of people who say that they will attend. And so it's uh, incredibly rude, unless you have a very good reason to say that you're going to attend and then not attend later. So food preparation, much different in Jesus's day than in our day for a couple reasons. It wasn't as easy to know when food was going to uh, be ready. And, and so they could, mark their, they could mark their calendar that this is the day that that banquet was going to take place, but they didn't know the exact time. And the other thing that further complicated this was there was no refrigeration. And so basically, as soon as that food is ready, so guests wouldn't know exactly when the food was going to be ready, but as soon as that food was ready, they had to get there and they had to eat it very quickly, right? And so that's when the second invitation would take place. So the first invitation, weeks or months ahead of time, most of you that have study Bibles probably makes note of this. And then on the day of the banquet, when all the preparations were finished or when that food was ready, then the master would send out a, another servant or servants to all of those guests who committed to attend to let those guests know, those guests who had been preparing for the banquet, that all of the food was ready and that now they could come and enjoy the, the festivities, enjoy the supper. Now, the first invitation, it went out in verse 16, and, uh, which we just read. And now the second invitation, which would be the runners or the servants who go out when all the food is ready, is in verse 17. So verse 17, it says, And at the time for the banquet, based on when all the food is ready, he sends his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And this brings us to lesson one. The preparations are finished for our great banquet too. The preparations are finished for our great banquet too.
How does this king look to you? There's not just one right answer for this, but how does he look to you? Generous. Yeah, I think he looks generous. He looks kind. He looks gracious. He seems to want to bless these guests. He's not charging anything, right? There's no cost of admission. He makes the offer attractive. He lets everyone know that all the work is done and that basically they don't have to do anything except what? Yeah, accept or show up or go. And it's a wonderful picture of what? Our salvation. It's a wonderful picture of what has been done for each of us. What do you have to do to be saved? Accept. Respond. There's no work. There's no effort on your part. As much as this servant says, it is finished, it has been said to you that it is finished. Jesus said that on the cross. All the preparations are done. The banquet has been made ready for you. Christ has done all the work. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the words, everything is now ready, and you can write, it is finished. We have received this same invitation that the individuals in Jesus' day received. It is as though God has said to us, come to my banquet. Everything is ready for you. There is a wonderful feast that is waiting. You don't have to do anything. I have done all of the work. You just need to accept. You just need to attend. Now, if I put this parable in its historical context, if you want to write in your Bible again, first you can circle the words, sent his servant to call, and you can write Old Testament prophets. Let me say that one more time. You can circle the words, sent his servant to call. That was the first invitation that went out through the Old, and then draw a line and put Old Testament prophets. So the first invitation for this banquet was throughout the Old Testament, whenever, whenever God sent his Old Testament prophets to uh, preach to people about the coming banquet, or we could say, to make it clear, the coming kingdom of God. When those Old Testament prophets went forward and preached to people about the coming Messiah, what was that Messiah going to bring? He was going to bring the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. It wasn't brought in the Old Testament, but Christ brings it in the Gospels, and that's when, if you want to circle something else, those who had been invited, you could circle those who had been invited, draw a line and write Jews. Say those who had been invited and draw a line and write Jews. God promised the kingdom of God to the Jews. The gospel would go first to them, and then they would preach the gospel to others. He sent the first invitation throughout the Old Testament through the Old Testament prophets, Jesus brings the kingdom of God from heaven to earth so that now the banquet is ready. When Christ comes, the meal has been prepared. And now the second invitation goes out, first through John the Baptist, as he's that forerunner for Christ, and then through Christ himself as he's inviting people to this banquet that he has, let's say, prepared for them or brought with him from heaven to earth. But what happened when Jesus came? He just wasn't that Messiah that they wanted, right? They're looking for that deliverer like Moses, or they're looking for that uh, to deliver them from Rome the way that Moses delivered the Hebrews from the Egyptians, or that Davidic-like figure, the military leader who's going to conquer Rome the way that David conquered the Philistines, or they're looking for that uh, Solomon-type figure who's going, you know, the Messiah will have the fame and power 
and, and riches and glamour and extravagance of Solomon, and Solomon will take Judea and turn it into the golden years that Judea had known under Solomon, and then they come, and then Jesus comes, and they look at him, and he looks nothing like David, Moses, or Solomon, at least not the way they wanted him to. It would be Christ's second coming, or if they had not crucified him, had not rejected him, and his kingdom had been established on the earth physically, that they would have seen that in his first coming, but now we will wait until his second coming for that. So they reject him. And so look at their response, verse 18. They all begin to make these excuses because they don't want to go to the banquet. They don't like the banquet that he's offering. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20, another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, if you pause for a second, when Jesus preached, we know that he frequently used hyperbole or exaggeration, or he said things that sounded absurd so that he can make a point. What are some examples that come to mind? What do you have in your eye? Well, what, is, what does your friend have in his eye? What's in your eye? That, that's pretty absurd. That's exaggeration or hyperbole. What are you supposed to do with your hand or your eye if it causes you to sin? Look, looking at all of your hands, I can tell none of, the, none of you have taken this literally. Uh, what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to feel toward your father and mother if you want to follow Christ? Um, what's a camel going to get through? And so that's all hyperbole. That's all absurd statements that our Lord uses to try to drive home a point. And believe it or not, this parable contains equal absurdity. This parable contains equal exaggeration that Jesus's listeners would have almost rolled their eyes or scoffed at when he preached. And why is that? Because guess what? Nobody would ever decline. You would never decline a banquet like this, especially not for these reasons. People would be thrilled to attend, and this brings us to lesson two. There's no good reason to reject the invitation to the great banquet. There's no good reason to reject the invitation to the great banquet. Look back at verse 18. I want to draw your attention to two things. First, notice the word excuses. This is kind of interesting to me that the verse actually says the word excuses because when people are talking to you and they're giving you reasons that they can't do something that you wanted them to do, you're forced to determine whether they're telling you the truth or whether they're giving you excuses. You want to think the best, but you can start to suspect at times that the person is making an excuse, right? You don't even have to do that with this parable, do you? (laughs) You don't have to wonder if these people are making excuses. Jesus himself told us that they were making excuses. Second, notice the word make. Excuses have to be what? They have to be made. They have to be fashioned or created because they're not true. We have to come up with them. They're not reality. We have to develop them ourselves. Now, the people in Jesus' day... They typically worked, just so we might feel a little more fortunate associated with our work days. You know, we have, let's say, our five, eight-hour work days. For many of us, it's probably more than that. But contrast that with the six, 12-hour work days 
that the people in Jesus's day worked, followed by one day off, and then that cycle of six days, 12-hour workdays would begin again. And so life in Jesus's day for most people was, it was short, it was difficult, and largely uneventful compared to our lives. So guess what everyone wanted to attend? (laughs) Yeah, weddings, banquets, celebrations like this. They were large parties, and they were one of the only times, because we are so opulent, we can invite people over and bless them with uh, incredible amounts of food. But for people in Jesus' day, if a wedding was coming, you pinched every penny and you saved up everything to be able to provide the food that would feed all of these people for the length of that feast. And we know this largely from Jesus' first miracle, where it was a, a huge faux pas for someone to have uh, it was very shameful for them to have run out of what? Wine. And you, that could give you a bad reputation, you know, for years or perhaps the rest of your life. And so a wedding or a banquet like this was the one time that people knew that they could actually come and relax and be fed by somebody else. And that's not even the king's son's wedding. That's how you felt about everyone else's wedding. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event for a king's son to be married and you weren't invited you were not invited unless you were what ultra popular or famous or significant so the average person would never be invited to the wedding of the king's son which really reveals the absurdity associated with an average ordinary person being invited to the king's son's wedding a once-in-a-lifetime event, and not doing everything within their power to be able to attend. Now, I was thinking about how difficult it is for us to picture just how absurd it was for these people to make these excuses, because if you read the account, you, you might not have gotten that kind of insight associated with the absurdity until I just explained it there, or unless you perhaps read a commentary about it, we could, we could sort of miss that. And so I thought it'd be kind of interesting this morning if we were to act this out so you could have a better idea of what it would look like in modern times or in our day for people to reject an invitation like this. Now, fortunately, we have some talented young actors here who are willing to give you an idea of what this would look like if they'd like to come up. Hello, I'm the servant of the king. He prepared an extravagant banquet for his son's wedding. I know the three of you have been looking forward to it just like everyone else. It is going to be amazing, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Nobody in their right mind would want to miss it. You were invited a while ago, you accepted, and now I'm excited to let you know everything is ready and it's time for you to come. Um, I can't go. There's this property that I bought with a mansion, and I have to take care of it. You have got to be kidding me. You're going to skip the banquet to go to this property. You can't go some other time or get someone else to go for you? No, I have to go right now, and there's no other time I can go. Nobody else will do it for me. Um, I know you're not going to believe this, but I just bought these expensive turbocharged oxen for my farm. And I have to go examine them to make sure they're any good. You already bought them. And now you're going to skip the banquet to go examine them. 
That, that doesn't even make any sense. Who examines animals, sorry, I mean turbocharged oxen, after buying them? Uh, I do. I'd like to stay and talk a little longer, but i got to get going. My animals are calling me. I just got married, and because of that, I can't come. You can't come because you just got married. <laughs> Why, that shouldn't stop you. Just bring her. I mean, how much can she eat? She's afraid there might be bacon, and the food won't be gluten-free. <laughs> there won't be any bacon because pig lives matter, and there will not be any gluten either because gluten lives matter too. Well, in Leviticus, Excused from military service after getting married, so I can't come. This isn't military service. You're going to a banquet, not a battle. Wouldn't your wife want to come? No, she's super introverted and doesn't like being around people. The wife's a calling. Yeah. Pretty absurd, right? So, as ridiculous as these people sounded, that is how ridiculous the people in Jesus' parable sounded to the people in Jesus' day when he preached this parable to them. And we can laugh and we can joke about it, but what is the application? The application is the absurdity of these people not wanting to attend this banquet pictures the absurdity of people who wouldn't want to what? Go to heaven. Who wouldn't want to accept the gospel, who wouldn't want to be forgiven, who would instead choose through their rejection to go to hell. Now, we could wonder why such an incredible invitation, something as wonderful as the gospel, would be rejected, and these questions give us this answer. Or another way to say it is, if Christianity is as wonderful and as true as it is, why wouldn't more people put their faith in Christ? Why would more people reject, or why would so many people reject the gospel when it is preached to them? And we get the answer, or you could say we get the answers or excuses in this parable, because here's something to consider. Of all the excuses that Jesus could give for people rejecting the gospel, why do you think that he chose these three that are recorded in this parable? Well, I think, and there are many other commentators that think the same thing, or maybe I could say I think this because many other commentators think this, that these three excuses that are recorded here summarize the three main excuses people give for rejecting the gospel. And so because of the significance of each of these excuses that Jesus would prevent them as the reasons that heaven frequently hears why people reject Christ, I want us to look at each of them. So the first one in verse 18, the second half of verse 18, the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, this man, here's what's important to remember about these excuses. Each of these people have already done what? Yeah, they have committed to attend. They had received an invitation weeks or months earlier. They knew the date of the banquet. They easily could have arranged their calendars. 
to attend, but this individual is going to put a higher priority on completing this real estate deal, and this brings us to the first excuse. Lesson three, the three main excuses for rejecting the invitation are our part one possessions. <clears throat> our part one possessions. What happens when we buy something new? We can be, it's, it's still shiny, right? And so we're kind of preoccupied by it. We're consumed with it. Preoccupation with material things is a common excuse for not following Christ. And there are two examples of this excuse in the Gospels. If you happen to be at Sunday school this morning, you would have heard an extensive teaching uh, from Jameson on the rich young ruler. And what was the obstacle to the rich young ruler coming to Christ? It was his riches or it was his possessions. That's the first example of someone in the Gospels giving them, or maybe it's the second, because actually the first example is contained in the parable of the soils. Jesus preaches about those three soils, the third soil, the seed lands among the thorns, and Jesus said, Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. So the rich young ruler, if you think about the conversation that he had with Christ, how did he look? Did, did he look Christ-rejecting? Let me say it like that. Did he look atheistic or even agnostic? No, he looked sincere. He looked interested in spiritual matters. He asked very good questions, but he wasn't willing what? And a part, part with his possessions. And so that seed landed on his heart, and it just didn't take root because it was choked out by the wealth that he put ahead of Christ. And there are plenty of people that can make this excuse today. If they're honest, they'll say things like, I am way too busy buying things right now. There are too many other things in my life that I want. If I follow Christ, then that would mean giving up these things that I enjoy, and I'm just not going to do that. I don't have time for God because I am way too busy with all of my stuff. I've got this boat. I've got this trailer. I've got this timeshare. I can't be going to church because then I wouldn't be able to use these things. Now, that's not to say for a moment that people can't have boats or trailers or timeshares or possessions. I mean, there are many people that have these things and use them to serve and bless others and to um, glorify God. But there is a problem when those things stand between us and God and aren't being used. Uh, it's not viewed as a stewardship. We aren't using those things for God's glory. The second excuse in verse 19. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Now, in Christ's day, oxen were not used for pleasure. They were used for work. Uh, although I suppose maybe Samuel Chris could find ways to use a turbocharged oxen for pleasure. But for most people, oxen were for work. And so when this person says, hey, I got to go check out these oxen, what's he basically saying? My job is my idol, and I cannot let it stand. I, I cannot let Christ come between me and my profession. And this brings us to the next part of lesson three. Three main excuses for rejecting the invitation are our part to work. And these people, they might not be atheists. They might not be antagonistic to the Lord. Perhaps if they had a conversation about God, there could be some number of wonderful things that they would say about him. They might, might even tell you about times that they've prayed or, or convince you that they, how much they believe in God. 
but they're not going to make time for him because of their work. If they're honest, then they're going to say things like this. I am too busy making money. I have got to get ahead in my job. I am very concerned about this next promotion that I might miss. I've got to complete this project. I've got another sale that needs to be finished. I've got to keep expanding my business. I've got to reach out to this next person for this business connection that's going to allow me to be that much more successful. So they also accepted the invitation ahead of time. They could have planned for it, which is to say the oxen could have waited, but work was more important to them. And then the third and final excuse, verse 20. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Although a wife is mentioned, you can tell that this is really a warning against people putting any earthly relationships between, uh, really between them and Christ. And this brings us to the next excuse, the three main excuses, part three, relationships. Part three, relationships. Now notice the first, what did the first two people request? What, did the, what was the request the first two people made that this man didn't make? Do you see it? Please have me excused. Now I could be wrong about this, but my suspicion is he didn't ask to be excused because it's pretty accepted that you're not going to put family members um, behind Christ. You've got to keep your spouse, your children, your parents as the most important relationships in your life. And it can be very offensive to people to learn that Christ wants to be supreme even above your spouse or even above your children or or even above your parents. In other words, it's like this guy did not even have to ask to be excused for what reason? Because it is so reasonable that he would put his wife ahead of Christ. You just mention a family member. You just mentioned that your parents wouldn't want this. You mentioned that your children wouldn't want this. You mentioned that your spouse wouldn't want this. And it's like the trump card, you know, someone lays that down and then there's no arguing with them. And then it's like, okay, I can understand why you're not going to come to Christ. You know, I can understand why you're not going to come to church, why you're not going to read the Bible. You don't want, you know, these people, you can't have them being upset with you. You might lose these relationships. And so that's why this looks like the noblest excuse of the three. We can very easily condemn people who put possessions ahead of Christ. We can condemn people who put their jobs ahead of Christ. But we're going to be sensitive to those people who would put family members or spouses or children ahead of Christ because we cannot imagine that Christ would expect us to have a compromised relationship with them to have a relationship with him. But look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, it's almost like there's what other relationships could we even mention? And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We'll look at this verse probably in the next sermon, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it right now, but Jesus could not have been clearer that every single relationship in our life has to take a back seat to our relationship with him. And there are people, and it has meant the end of earthly relationships for them when they chose Christ over those people. But the, 
the reality is, as, as difficult as this can be to believe, that to choose Christ over those people is in the best interest of those people. Because then there's the potential in the future for those people to see Christ through you, to observe your relationship with the Lord and come to faith or come to the knowledge of the gospel or, or for there to be some opportunity where you can share with them why you have chosen Christ over them. But that's not going to happen if you put Christ in the back seat and everyone recognizes that he was of so little significance to you that as soon as you faced a little bit of opposition or rejection from your family, you just turned turn your back on him. I mean, I had the uh, incredibly... Um, blessed experience of sharing the gospel with my parents, even despite the terrible job I did associated with the way that I left the Catholic Church and embraced Christianity. I look back and there are, you know, uh, almost infinitely uh, better ways to have done it than the way I did. God still graciously worked through that and allowed me to share the gospel with my parents, for them to become Christians, for me to baptize them, and for them to be part of our church family and dad to serve as a as a deacon for their, here for the remaining years of his life. And so, uh, you know, not, maybe not a lot of things I look back on my life and, and can feel, um, you know, uh, incredibly thankful for, but that would be, you know, one of those decisions when it's like, by God's grace, he just brought me along to have been able to cling to him when it meant that many of my family members were very upset with me. And so that would be my encouragement. Put Christ even ahead of those family members so that they might come to Christ through observing your relationship with him. But there won't be that potential if you put those family members ahead of Christ. Briefly look, or now let's go to see how the king responds here in verse 21. The servant came and he reported these things to his master. That's to the king and then the master of the house. He became angry. This is a long verse. We're going to go ahead and pause here, break it into two parts, and look at the first part first. If you're listening to this parable, it's so evangelistic that if you're a believer, you can almost start to tune out and think that there's not much application here because you're not one of these people making the excuse, right? You, you uh, have accepted the invitation to the banquet. You've repented, put your faith in Christ. If you died today, you would be in the presence of the Lord, right? As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's the category you're in. So you kind of look into this parable and you're like, you know, it doesn't have as much application for me. You're not one of the three people that's making the excuse. If you want to find application, guess who you are? You should be the servant. The application for you is in reading about the servant. You are the person who should be running around doing what? Yeah, inviting people to the banquet. You should be looking at what this servant is doing, and you're wanting to serve the master or the king going out and inviting other people to this banquet, because this is exactly what we do when we share the gospel. We invite people to the wedding of God's son. We say everything is ready. He has prepared it for you. All the work has been done. It is finished. God is inviting you to his banquet. He has this wonderful feast for you, but you must accept what Christ has done for you. You must repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ as the Savior that you need because you have failed to live up to that perfect righteous standard that God said is required for you to enter heaven. 
And one of the things that can really encourage us as I was reflecting on the application that this servant has for us, or let me say like this, one of the things that I, can, I think can really encourage us in our evangelism is considering how people responded to this servant when he went out and invited them. At least up to this point, how has this servant looked? Successful or unsuccessful? Incredibly unsuccessful. I mean, he's like on par with Jeremiah, you know, the prophet. There are no positive responses to his invitations to repentance. His, His preaching just makes him look like this monumental failure up to this point. But there are two reasons that he wasn't one, wasn't a monumental failure. First, despite the way people responded, he was still what? Which is all God wants of us. He was faithful. That's all we can be, is we can be faithful. By raise your hand if you have ever been able to control someone else's response to the gospel. You know, God does not hold us responsible for people's responses. He simply holds us responsible for being faithful. Um, People's responses are not evidence of our faithfulness or evidences of our unfaithfulness. Second, the other reason that he wasn't a failure and the other reason that you're not a failure, you shouldn't feel like one, or let me say it like this. The reason you should never feel rejected when you share the gospel with people and they reject it, is you're not being what? Rejected. Did you know that every time throughout all of human history that the gospel has been shared and it was rejected, there has always only ever been one person who was rejected. And who's that? It wasn't you. And it wasn't me. It wasn't Jeremiah the prophet (laughs) throughout his ministry. The only person who has ever been rejected when the gospel has been shared is the Lord himself. You, you can't be rejected. What could, I mean, think, what could you be rejected for? You haven't done anything. <laughs> you haven't done anything for anyone. What would people reject that you've done for them? All you're doing is telling them about what Christ has done, and they have rejected what Christ has done. And if you can understand that, then you can understand why it says that the king was what? What does it say in the verse? It's not a trick question. Take a look. The king didn't do this. He didn't say, oh, that must have been so discouraging for you. I cannot believe that you ran around to all those people. You're probably exhausted. There was hundreds of people invited, and I just sent out one servant. You've been going house to house to house, and everyone has declined. He didn't do that. He didn't pity this man because the man wasn't being rejected. The king was angry because he knew that he was being rejected. And look at the rest of the verse to see how the king further responds. He says to his servant in verse 21, he says, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, have you ever prepared a meal for someone or a family and perhaps for circumstances beyond their control, they weren't able to attend and they kind of tell you last minute that they're not going to make it, but you've already prepared this meal and you don't want it to be wasted. And and so what do you do then? Yeah, you kind of scramble to find someone else to come over. You also don't want to have cleaned your house for nothing, right? (laughs) So you're like, hey, 
let's get some other people here to, to enjoy this food and the hard work we went through to make our house look good. And so there's a sense in which that's sort of what's happening here. The king is like, I'm not wasting this. There's a lot of work that has been put forth for people to come to this banquet. My son has done an incredible amount, and if these people don't appreciate it, there are going to be some other people who do. And if you don't want to attend, then that's fine. There will be some other people, but this place is going to be filled. There is going to be a celebration for my son. He is going to be worshipped for what he has done. And if these people don't want to worship, then there will be others who do. Bring in the the blind, the poor, the crippled, the lame, basically bring in all of the, from last week's sermon, Mephibosheths of the world. Go get those Mephibosheths, each of them. Bring them in and they will worship my son. And now we see another absurd part of this parable. When the king invited the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, if you were listening to this parable, what would you do? You'd go like this, you'd go... (laughs) You'd roll your eyes. You'd scoff. A king never invites these people. It is absurd that a king would ever invite these people to a banquet. And that's why when David does what he does in 2 Samuel 9, it is the complete, like we read about last week, it is the complete opposite of what every other king throughout human history would do, but also why when David does that, he serves as such a dramatic picture or type of Christ of the Lord. 2 Samuel 9 with Mephibosheth has never been primarily about David and Mephibosheth. It has primarily been about Christ and sonship, being adopted into the king's family to eat at his table, and us being wretched sinners who could never receive anything except execution in our own effort. And so when when Jesus says, the poor, crippled, blind, bring them in, everyone listening is just like, give me a break. This is absurd. No king would ever act this way. But in the context of the parable in Jesus' day, these are the common Jews who are going to be invited. And it was going to be offensive, or not it was going to be, it was presently offensive to the religious leaders. Because remember the context in which Jesus preaches this. Where is he? Where is he at this moment when he preaches this parable? He's in the house of a religious leader surrounded by other religious leaders. And he preaches that those religious leaders will not be in attendance. Instead, all of the ordinary common Jews who want to accept the invitation will be in attendance. And then you say, well, is it really the ordinary Jews? Wouldn't it be the Gentiles? Not yet. Actually, not yet. The Gentiles are not invited until verse 22. Look at verse 22. The servant said, What you have commanded has been done, and still there's room, because there wasn't a real great reception from the Jews, was there? The early church was predominantly what? I mean, Pentecost, the early church is filled with Christians who are Jews, but it wasn't a lot of them. There was a lot of room for what to come in? Gentiles. And that's what's in view here. Verse 23, the master said to the servant, now the Gentiles are invited. Go to the highways, go to the hedges, compel these people to come in that my house may be filled with them. Now, if you think that it's offensive to the religious leaders to learn that the Jews are invited when they're excluded, 
how offended do you think they are when Jesus says, the Gentiles are coming in while you guys are excluded? I mean, sometimes you're almost surprised that sitting at that meal, the, those religious leaders didn't pick up rocks and start stoning Jesus on the spot. You know, they had enough uh, self-control to, to wait until they could, they could reach the high priest and, and, and petition Pilate to have Christ crucified. But you can be sure that all of the hatred that the religious leaders had toward Christ on the day that they called out for his crucifixion when Pilate was standing near him, they had all that hatred bound up in their hearts right at this supper. When they hear Jesus say, you're not coming, we're getting the ordinary Jews, and then we're going beyond them to all of the Gentiles that want to come. Because the highways, those were populated by travelers from everywhere. And the hedges, they provided shelter for these travelers as they stopped to rest or sleep along the way. And so, to be clear, the mention of the hedges, it indicates the scope of the search when the servants are sent out. Or in other words, you could say like this, this is the whosoever of John 3.16. Jesus says, you go anywhere and everywhere that you can find people and you preach the gospel to them, to the very ends of the earth. They need to be, they need to be reached. And notice the words, compel to come. Compel people to become. Why would these people need to be compelled or convinced to come because they know what they don't belong (laughs) they're like wait the king doesn't want me i know that i'm not going to the king's son's wedding i don't get invited to something like that i can imagine the people who should go but that i'm not in that category i would not be welcome the king is not going to want me at his great banquet. And so the king tells a servant, you're going to have to compel them. You're going to have to convince them that they belong. And then the last verse this morning, look at this dramatic shift that takes place. Verse 24, I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Did you notice the dramatic shift there? So I've been preaching this parable all along from the beginning as though salvation is in view but you kind of had to trust me that that was the case i've been studying it all week so i can tell you that but when you read this and jesus says nobody's going to taste what this isn't about anything other than my banquet this is about me this is about my celebration this is about people who have repented and put their faith in me this is about people coming into the kingdom of god that's what this parable is primarily about salvation entrance into the kingdom now previously the kingdom had been or excuse me the banquet had been the banquet of the king in the parable but now jesus says this is my banquet and that's why he says this in verse 24 when he says for i tell you you can't always tell in english but this is the plural form of you in the greek so we can you could sound singular but i can say i'm talking to all of you and then we know that you is being used plurally right to respond to refer to more than one person and this is the plural form of the word you so in other words it's like this jesus is at this supper and he's talking to the religious leaders but right here he says i'm talking to all of you i'm talking to every single someone say y'all yeah he's talking to all y'all that's about as good as my texan accent gets 
But the fact is, Jesus is saying everyone should be listening. Like he says in Revelation 2 and 3, if you have an ear, let him hear what I'm saying to the churches. And so everyone needs to consider whether they are attending this banquet. And because Jesus is speaking to all of us, let me conclude with one final lesson tying this together, lesson four. There is still room at the great banquet for those who won't make excuses. There is still room at the great banquet for those who won't make excuses. Now, briefly look back at verse 15 to the verse that caused Jesus to preach this parable in the first place. In verse 15, one of the religious leaders who reclines at the table with Jesus, he hears these things and he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And this stuck out to me. This is interesting. The focus of this parable is people making excuses. Or the focus of this parable is people who don't want what? Just to be honest. They're making excuses because they don't. What do they? They just don't want what? They don't want to attend. They don't want to go to the banquet. Did this guy want to attend the banquet? He did. So that's why it's a little ironic because he's not making excuses. Not only did he want to attend, he thought he was going to be there. Jesus had to preach this parable to correct this man's thinking. Now, we can understand why people who make excuses would be excluded from this banquet, but then you kind of look at this guy and you say, well, wait a second, he's not making excuses. Why would he be excluded? Is the king really going to send away people who want to be in heaven? Is he? He is. Do you know why? Because you can only get to heaven through the king's which this man had rejected. This man is sitting at the table with the Christ whom he rejects, whom he despises, whom he will call out for his crucifixion later. So here's the point. It doesn't matter how much you want to go to the banquet. It does not matter how much you want to go to heaven. I've never met anyone who doesn't want to go to heaven. Have you ever met anyone who says, oh, heaven, no, I just, uh, it's not for me. doesn't sound good. Everyone wants to go to heaven. But you can only get there one way, and that's what? Through Christ. Briefly look back at verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And this is, spiritually speaking, exactly what God has done. He has invited all of the spiritually poor. He has invited all of the spiritually crippled or spiritually lame who cannot walk with God in their own efforts, which is to say we can't be right with God. We cannot have a relationship with God in our own effort. We can only have one through Christ. Those who are blind, which is to say spiritually blind to spiritual truth until the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes, spiritually speaking, to understand and believe. He has invited all of the Mephibosheths of the world, including us. And then look at the end of verse 22. These are wonderful words. Still there is room. Still there is room at this banquet. And that's my invitation to you today. There is still room to attend the great banquet for those people who won't make what? Who will not make excuses. There is room for those people who repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. I will be at front after service. If you have any questions about anything I shared this morning or I could pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you for this banquet that awaits us, those of us who 
look to Christ to be saved, who see the need for a Savior because of our sinfulness. And I would pray, Lord, I, I don't have a responsibility toward people outside the walls of this church. I'm thankful for the, the flock, the congregation that you've given me here and how it would grieve me if there were people here who, like this man in verse 15, expected to be at that banquet but uh, would be excluded. And so I pray, Lord, that nobody would make excuses, that there wouldn't be any idols in our lives that would hinder us from Christ. I pray for your sovereign work in each person's heart that you would open it to the gospel. I think in Acts 16 with Lydia, it says you opened her heart to the gospel and that you would do that with, with each person here, any who are unsaved. Lord, we thank you for what awaits us in heaven with Christ and give us anticipation and excitement for that, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.